Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Please open your Bibles to Job chapter 1. Old Testament, right before the Psalms. If you got to the Psalms, you went too far. Okay, well, we all go through them. We all experience them. Some have more than others. But at some point, every single person will encounter them. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. All of the greatest characters in the Bible go through them. The Apostle Paul went through it in Acts 20.19. It gives the account that it says, Serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. James tells us to be joyful in the midst of them because there's a greater purpose. James 1 uh, verses 2 and 3 say, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. What am I talking about? Anybody want to venture a guess? Trials, pain, suffering, distresses, misfortunes, calamities, any other words? Troubles, sickness, sickness, adversities, hardships, life, difficulties, relationships. We all go through we all go through it. Okay, so we find out the who who's behind all of man's suffering. We're also we're going to find out who is God? Who is God in the midst of our suffering? And we're also going to find out who we are. Who we are in the midst of suffering. We should become wiser in these things because of the study of this book. Does God really allow suffering and pain in the lives of his people? I think we can all answer from experience, yes. We all experience pain. Yet when we take the scriptures in their entirety, we understand that God is sovereign. This means that his will is supreme. It's unlimited. It's absolute. He can do whatever he pleases. Psalm 135 verse 6 tells us whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas, and in all the deep places. But we have to remember that unlike a human king or other ruler, God's purposes are always righteous and pure. Amen? So when we go through pain and trials, we need to remember that although God might allow it, it is His perfect will for us. And His will is always 
righteous, and pure. See, we don't always see things from God's perspective. We may see suffering, we may experience suffering and wonder why if God is sovereign, why doesn't he stop the pain from happening in the first place? We may know Romans 8.28 and quote it and say we know, it says there, we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. But that verse may actually even leave us more confused than we started, wondering if a sovereign God can turn suffering around for good, why can't he stop it to begin with? Those are important questions. We're going to get a picture as to the heart of God in this book, in his interaction with various characters throughout this story. So we're going to jump in in verses 1 through 5 in Job chapter 1. And it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East, and his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. The first thing we get to see as we open the pages of this book is Job's character. Job's character. Four specific personality traits that are described in these verses. First, we see that he's blameless. We see that he's blameless. Now, we may not use that word in today's language very often. But before we talk about what blameless is in the Bible, let's talk about what it isn't. Blameless does not mean sinless. Because there's no person who is sinless in this world. And there are two, ten, two senses to the word blameless. First, as it, as it relates to God, blameless. Job was one who sought after the things of God. He desired to please God and to live according to His ways. Psalm 119 verse 80 says, Let my heart be blameless, regarding your statutes, that I may not be ashamed. Interesting to note that Job's desire was to please God. Many years before the giving of the law of Moses came about, he had this unique, intimate relationship with God, understood his heart, wanting to please him. And so he's described here as blameless. Pursuing righteousness. First Thessalonians, 
Paul writes in 523, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blameless because of our trust in Christ. But blameless also could be in regard to our relationship with others. How people see you as you walk in this world. That they have nothing to accuse you of. In, in the Greek, in the New Testament, that word blameless is used often. And it's something that is unreprovable or unaccused. You can't be called into account on it. Amongst your peers. It's used when we're seeking leaders in the church. A standard to sort of judge those who might be called upon to minister to the body of Christ. In 1 Timothy 3.10, speaking of, of leaders in the church, Paul writes, But let those also first be tested. Let them serve as deacons being found, what? Blameless. Blameless. Nothing that people can accuse you of. Job was this man. Blameless before God, blameless before others. And he was upright. This description of him that says upright, that means respectable. He was honest, he was decent, he was moral. This is more than just good deeds. Uprightness goes right to the heart of who the person is. It describes his innermost thoughts and tendencies. And although the Bible tells us that men... Have, all men have sinned. All men fall short of the glory. There are some who seek God, who tend to seek God more often than not. Job was one of these. That should describe us also as followers of Christ. Can people say that about us? That we're respectable, that we're honest, that we're decent, that we're moral. The next thing we see about Job in this description of his character is that he's God-fearing. He's God-fearing. He fears God, it says. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that he's trembling in terror from the wrath of a vengeful God? Well, not really. That's not really the sense of this word. In, in the Bible, it has different meanings, but here we think of it in more than more like revering than fearing. Job revered God. He stood in awe of God. He respected God. He gave him honor and reverence that he was worthy of. He recognized God's majesty and in humility he gave God glory. 33 times in the Bible we are told to fear God. This is the a character trait of a follower of God, is to have fear of God. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If we want to gain wisdom in the things of God, if we want to have more understanding of who He is, we need to be, stand in awe of Him. Revere Him and respect Him and honor Him for who He is. And God says He'll give us understanding if we fear Him. If we put Him in His rightful place of honor in our lives. 
And then we see this last quality of Job. He shuns evil. He shuns evil. That's the same thing that's spoken of in the New Testament, is that, he, that Paul writes a lot about us fleeing evil. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee sexual immorality. He writes in 1 Corinthians 10.14, flee from idolatry. 2 Timothy 2, flee youthful lusts. Flee. What does that mean? What does that mean? That means that when we recognize something that's displeasing to God, that we should be going in the other direction. That should be one of the character traits of a follower of Christ. And that's what Job's character was all about. So he was a righteous man. He was blameless. Verses 2 and 3 tell us something else about Job. It tells us about his prosperity. It says, Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household. I would think so, that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And now the household is those servants, those people who took care of everything that he, he owned. But remember, we see his character first, and then we see his possessions second. I think that's purposeful in the scriptures. That as we're describing the character of Job, we see that his relationship with God was the most important thing. It wasn't about his possessions. It wasn't about his wealth. Because our wealth is measured, really, our true wealth is measured in our character. Proverbs eleven twenty eight says, He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. In Proverbs 22, 4, by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. That's really what our wealth is based on, our relationship with God, trusting in God. And you know, it says here about that he had a large family, and that was very important in that culture. It was a sign of wealth, but also a sign of God's blessings. And as was a person's possessions in livestock and servants, a sign of wealth and also a sign of the blessings of God. So basically the Bible is telling us here that Job was a moral man, a decent man, an honorable man, and he was a recipient of God's blessings, as well as being the richest man in the region at that time. But we also get a picture into Job's spiritual leadership style in his family. And I think this is important also. He takes the responsibility in his family to be the priest and spiritual leader. He recognizes even the sins of his own children and he doesn't make excuses for them. He offers sacrifices on their behalf in verse 5 says, so it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. He would rise early in the morning, offer burnt sacrifices according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. How often have you heard a parent say, or maybe you're a parent and you've said it, 
Oh, no, not my, not my child. Not my child. Too many parents, I think, make excuses for their kids. Even when they're caught doing something, they make excuses for them. They'd be much better served if they admitted the wrongdoings and confessed the sin and sought the Lord's forgiveness for their children. And Job here takes on that role as a spiritual leader of his family. And now we change the scene in these next several verses, verses 6 through 12. Now the scene shifts. It shifts from this earthly man, this good man, this, this godly man, this righteous man. It shifts now to a scene in heaven. We get a behind-the-scenes look at sort of this, uh, this transaction, so to speak, between, between God and Satan. So, verses 6 through 12, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came and to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. Have we heard that description before? Verse 1 tells us that same description. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. You get a picture of this scene in your, in your mind. When I, when I think of those verses, I think of Ephesians 6.12. It tells us, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's where the battle for the hearts and souls of every single man, woman, and child takes place. In the heavenly realm. That's where the battle lines are being drawn. And I love that God chose in this account, to open, kind of open the curtain of heaven for us so that we can get this, this view, a bird's eye view of this conversation between Satan and God. It allows us to get a picture of who, who is really behind all of the affliction that we go through. And we get to see also God's, God's opinion about Job. I love that. He, he gives, Job, he, he describes Job the same way that we read in verse 1. Right? He said Job is blameless, he's upright, he fears God, and he shuns evil. God agrees with, with that description of Job. 
And I think it gives us a perspective also when we get this behind-the-scenes look. Because we might be tempted to blame Job or blame God for his troubles, right? If we don't kind of get to see behind the scenes a little bit. So I think it's purposeful for us that this is given in this account. Verse 6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So this term, sons of God, used often in the Old Testament to describe angelic beings. You can see different um, passages in the Old Testament that speak in this with this language, sons of God. And notice that Satan was with them. Now, it's important to understand, Satan is not God's counterpart. He's not his equal. It's not that they're going head to head and that we don't know who's going to come out on top. He's a created being, like all the other created beings. He's limited in his power. God is not. There's no limitations. Verse 7 says, The Lord said to Satan, where do you come? From where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. Didn't really give a very clear answer. <laughs> Sounds like something Satan would say. Ah, just here and there, to and fro, going back and forth on the earth. But think about what that means. Think about that. Think about the fact that God, that Satan and his emissaries have kind of free reign to roam this world as well as to enter the heavenly realms. That's very interesting. But only as God allows. Only as God allows. Remember, he's limited. But we can just look around at the state of this world and we know that the enemy is working overtime to take down men and women in this world. And he'll do it by any means necessary. Any means necessary. The God of this age, it says in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this age has blinded those who do not believe. The God of this age tells us that Satan is a major influence on the people in this world, on their morals, on their attitudes, on their purposes. We see his effect in the world's philosophies. We see his effect in the false religions in this world that have been established on the lies of Satan, that draw people away from the one true God and toward false gods. We see his influence and the Apostle Peter gives us a warning about this enemy. He says in verse uh, 8 of chapter 5 in First Peter, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Seeking whom he may devour. See, that's kind of what he does. So when God asks, where do you come from? He was telling the truth. He's just roaming about, back and forth, across this earth, to and fro, seeking out a target to bring him down. 
And then we see this kind of this strange, this strange back and forth between God and Satan. And we see God here saying in verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? In other words, God's saying, Hey Satan, you're going back and forth, to and fro. I can, I can give you a, a subject. You, you don't have to keep going back and forth. Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So God kind of presents this challenge. You know, God considers us, but it's in a compassionate and a loving way. With grace and with mercy, he considers us. He's mindful of us. I think of the verse in Psalm 8-4 where David is kind of amazed at this relationship that he has with the Lord. And he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you would visit him? David is like, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm only a man. And yet, God, you desire to have a relationship with me? You, you are mindful of me? You consider me? That's hard for us to fathom. But Satan also considers man. Just not in the same way that God does. See, Satan is also mindful of us. But it's not in a benevolent way. He's mindful of how he can take us down. How he can cause us to question God. How he can make us turn our back on our Creator. That's how Satan is mindful of us. That's how he considers us. So, God may be confusing to us. We we don't really understand this. And I think this may trip a lot of people up. He kind of initiates this wager with Satan. And at first glance, we may think that God is kind of manipulating Job without regard for the outcome. In a way, though, that particular verse of Lord saying, have you considered my servant Job? That verse right there kind of sets the tone for the rest of this book. That is the questioning of God's ways. The questioning of God's decisions, specifically toward Job, but in general toward all men. And I think it can be a little confusing to us sometimes. We don't quite understand it. But think about verse 8. The Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? And then he goes on to describe him in this way. He's blameless, he's upright, he fears God and he shuns evil. You know what? We really only have to be concerned about what God thinks of us. Not what other people think of us. God confirms what is written in verse 1. And he believes that Job has the integrity that will help him withstand the tragedy that Satan is going to inflict on him. I truly believe that. This was not manipulation on God's part. This was God knowing 
who Job was. And yes, allowing Satan to afflict him. But remember, he knows the end from the beginning, right? So we see see things in in, uh, chronological order in our life. We don't know how things are going to wind up. So maybe as we're going through a difficult time, we don't understand it. But many times we'll look back after we've been through that and we'll get a, a better understanding of why. Maybe we won't, but maybe we'll learn things through, through that. But God knows. God knows. So we see the accusation now against Job. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God? This is verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now, stretch out your hand against him and touch all he has. He will surely curse you to his face. So this sounds like an accusation against Job, but it's really an accusation also against God, isn't it? Isn't it really very similar to what Satan did in the Garden of Eden? In Genesis 3.1, it says, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Very shrewd Satan was, questioning God's goodness questioning our commitment to the Lord. Right? He puts doubt into our minds, as well as accusing God in that scene in the garden, accusing God of holding back on Adam and Eve, holding back his goodness. His strategy really hasn't changed in all these years. He does the same thing to try to take us down. Warren Wiersbe writes in Be Patient, his commentary on the book of Job. He writes, Satan's accusation against Job was really an attack on God. We might paraphrase it like this. The only reason Job fears you is because you pay him to do it. You two have made a contract. You protect him and prosper him as long as he obeys you and worships you. You're not a God worthy of worship. You have to pay people to honor you. That's really what Satan is saying. So as much as it is is an accusation against Job, it's also an accusation against God. And so the Lord says to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So we see here, God allowing this, this scene to play out. God allowing Satan the ability to afflict Job. But notice that it's limited. Understand this. This is something that we can take with us and, and it, sh- it should bring us encouragement and comfort. It's limited. God is always in charge. Satan can't do anything unless God allows him. So the next several verses from 13 to 19, we get 
we dig into this calamity. And we're going to go through it, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit. It says in verse 13, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided them and took them away, indeed they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, very important lines, check that, check that out. While this first messenger was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 17. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 18. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Wow. Four messages came, one right after another, four horrific announcements by four messengers. And in one day, in one day, Job lost everything of significance and meaning to his life. Now remember, God agreed that Job was righteous and upright, right? He was blameless. He feared God. He shunned evil. So believer, Christian, you're not immune to trials. Remember that. And I know you've all experienced them, so you you know that from personal experience. He was also very wealthy. He had all the possessions in the world. Great wealth will not keep you from trial. Remember that. In one day, everything of significance and meaning was taken away. Satan used evil men. God allowed it to accomplish his evil deeds. He does that. A lot of times he will get into the minds of men to do evil things. We see it in the world today. It hasn't changed. It's gone throughout human history. He used the Sabaeans here, enemies of Israel. They eventually actually fell to Israel in battle because God allowed them to take them out. And they were humbled by that. I I think it's important to to note that the two people groups here that, that, that Satan used to inflict Job in this way, both eventually came to know 
if not believe, but came to know who the one true God really was. So it says in Isaiah 45, just as a little side note, 14, speaking of these, these people here, the Sabaeans, Thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt and merchandise of Cush and of the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come in, they shall come over in chains and they shall bow down to you. This is God speaking of the victory that he gave Israel over these people. And they will make supplication to you saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other. There is no other God. And the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, it's, they are interchangeable many times in Scripture. They're the ones who raided the camels and took them away and killed the servants and inflicted that upon Job. One of the leaders of the, of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, remember what happened to him. We see this account of him throughout the Old Testament and, and in Daniel. It gives us this very unusual account of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. But in verse 37 of chapter 4, after everything that happened, it says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of those, all of whose works are truth, his ways justice, and those who walk in pride, he's able to put down. Now, imagine that from a man who was probably one of the most prideful men, or certainly was the most prideful man at that, at that time. Wanted me, people to bow down and worship him, an image that he made, and yet he's giving God, the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, honor that he's due. Eventually, every single man, woman, and child will bow before the Lord and recognize who he is. But notice that God uses these people. Satan gets into the minds of these these men and they just destroy everything that Job had. We see that even Satan has some control over Nature, over the weather. He used maybe a hurricane or a tornado to come through and, and just wipe out the house where his children were enjoying a, a, a festive meal and, and took them out. We shouldn't underestimate Satan. He'll use any means necessary to bring us down. But remember, he who's in us is greater than he who is in the world. Take comfort in that. And then we just see Job's response as we, as we kind of close it up tonight. And this is very, very important. I didn't want to leave us with the tragedy and the calamity without us seeing Job's response and kind of some hope that we have. And in verses 20 to 22, it says, Then Job arose tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, 
Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. This is the hope we have in the face of this tragedy that Job experienced and and in the ones that we experience. I'm speculating, I think, but I, I can imagine Satan and his emissaries and maybe the angels of heaven just watching this whole thing play out, wondering what Job's response would be to this, knowing that this whole arrangement happened in the heavenly realm. And his reaction, seeing what Job's reaction was. And I think he responds in a very human way, doesn't he? The tearing of clothes and the shaving of head back then was a sign of mourning, a sign of grief in that culture. And that's a totally appropriate. And when we have loss, it's totally appropriate for us to mourn and grieve that, that loss. There's nothing wrong with that. God expects us to act with human emotions when tragedy strikes. But he also reacts in a very unusual way. So he tears his clothes and he shaves his head and then he falls to the ground and worships. He falls to the ground and worships. Now that's not a normal reaction to what just happened to Job. I don't know anybody who would just say, yeah, that's how I would respond. I'm just going to fall to the ground and worship the Lord. But Job did. Instead of cursing God, he blesses God. Instead of cursing God, he blesses God. Instead of blaming God, he worships God. He looks at all the loss, all of his possessions, all of his family, and he realizes that I had nothing when I came into this world. I'm going to go out, out of this world with nothing. Everything that I have, God gave me. God blessed me. He provided me. And that's how he chose to look at it. He didn't take credit for his accumulation of wealth and all the possessions that he had. He gave the glory to God. He understood that God was ultimately in control. And he was fine with that. He didn't blame God. He didn't charge God with this disaster. And he shows us that God is worthy to be praised no matter what the circumstances are. Job puts feet on his faith, right? In the midst of his grief, grief, he still believed God had the best for him. And I would hope that we could maybe respond in the same way when Tragedy strikes us. Now, it doesn't always happen like that. And I get it because I've experienced it myself. And we're going to see, because lest you think that Job is some kind of super saint, he questions God, too. But his initial reaction, I think it's beautiful. I think it's just awesome. Something for us to to keep in our minds when we're going through difficult times. Now, as we go further in this book, we're going to see a lot of more human responses and interactions between Job and his friends and, and Job and God. And, and we're going to 
recognize those things probably more. But this is something that we should always remember. Next time we get together, we're going to see a final attack of the enemy. And after that, we start to get into seeing how those people closest to Job, those ones that you would call if you went through something like this, how they counsel him. And believe me, the story is going to get very interesting from there. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.